Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 329th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sharice Spiller. Sharice is founder and principal consultant for Level Best, an operations and process strategy consulting firm based in Houston, Texas. What's unique about Sharice, though, is how she's founded a consulting firm that doesn't just try to teach financial advisors how to systematize and automate their processes, and instead actually works as an outsourced operations provider to build and implement those systems with the goal of working herself out of a job over six to 12 months so that the advisory firm can once again run on its own, but now in a far more streamlined and efficient manner. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Sharice developed her approach of not only evaluating advisory firms' technology, but also their processes and systems and incorporates the importance of training the firm's teams to actually implement best practices within their existing systems. How Sharice defines her three pillars of operations, including streamlining, which is all about creating an efficient, repeatable process, automation, which is about leveraging technology, not just to streamline the task, but to automate it away altogether, and delegation for that subset of tasks that can't feasibly be automated, but still could be trained and handed off to another team member to free up the advisor's time. And how Sharice developed her own three tiers of service from consulting with advisors about the tech they could be using, working with advisors to build workflow and process maps within the firm, and then helping firms actually implement their new workflows and processes within their technology. And again, train their teams about how to actually use the tech to follow the new processes. We also talk about how Sharice discovered that for larger RIAs, often the real blocking point in scaling is not necessarily about whether the firm has systems and processes, but a lack of clear accountability about which team member is responsible for each step of the process as the firm grows. Why Sharice decided to create an educational resource and community called FinOps Co-op to further educate operations professionals on how they can optimize their systems and processes on an ongoing basis. And how Sharice realized that even though she was helping others optimize their time and businesses, she needed to help herself as a founder of a consulting firm and hired a financial coach to get her more centered and steer away from possible burnout. And be certain to listen to the end, where Sharice shares how she's lived firsthand the challenge that all service firms face as they begin to scale up with staff and have to sometimes revisit and increase their pricing to be able to afford to scale up properly. How she decided to go from an employee in advisory firm to a freelancer supporting advisory firms to an all-in founder of a consulting firm for advisors. And how Sharice has combined reading business books, leveraging local mentoring programs, and forming two mastermind groups for herself to level up her own marketing and sales and leadership skills as she and her business grew. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sharice Spiller. Welcome, Sharice Spiller, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me today. I'm I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and uh, uh, and getting to talk a little bit about just the dynamics of operations and scaling. Um, this is a theme that we've had copying up a a little bit more on the podcast over the past year or two. Uh, just I I think I hope reflective to the broader just shift that I'm seeing in the advisory firm environment. You know, there's this phenomenon that because clients tend to be so sticky in financial advisor models. Uh, and and so many of us are attached to assets under management models where markets grow over time. Advisory firms almost inevitably 
have recurring revenue models that goes up every year. Some combination of assets grew, clients add more assets, we get a couple of new client referrals, maybe we've got a marketing thing that works, and we attrition usually very, very few clients. And if you do that for enough years in a row, at some point, there are too many clients to do this on our own. And we start hiring some team members and maybe multiple team members and more team members. And and then at some point, things start breaking because a lot of different people are touching a lot of different things. And almost every advisory firm, when they start hiring and growing, the primary things that they hire are like more advisors to service the clients and maybe some administrative staff simply like to do the task work that's necessary to, to execute the steps of the business. But no one actually really starts thinking about like the systems of the business and the technology of the business and how it's actually standardizing and scaling. If you grow far enough, like things just start breaking. And and the only way to really get through that is a big investment of like hiring someone to become your like your full-time operations manager or COO or managing director and start fixing that stuff. But if you've never hired that position for, it feels like a lot of money for a non-revenue producing position to do that. And so I find a lot of firms start getting stuck for which in recent years, like just this new solution has started to emerge of kind of like fractional, fractional outsourcing, fractional outsourcing around para planners, fractional outsourcing around uh, uh, virtual assistants, and even now fractional outsourcing around just like the operations management and the systems building part. And I know you, you've spent the past several years building a business, doing outsourced operations management. You, you live this firsthand. And so I'm just... I'm looking forward to talking about like where these crossroads start cropping up and just like how it works when you're trying to outsource operations management so you can you can grow the business and get to the next level. Yeah, I think that is a, a great point. And I'm looking forward to talking about it today just because, you know, as soon as you launch or decide to launch a business, it should be something that's on your mind. Yeah, like at, at some point this can get big enough. We're at least going to have to figure these systems out. And and I get it. A lot of us as advisors, like we didn't necessarily start an advisory firm because we were really excited to build a scalable operational systems. Like it becomes necessary. And I don't mean to belittle that that work at all. It's hugely important. But you know, if, if you're wired to uh to build operational systems, often you find existing growing businesses that you can scale operational systems. The folks that start advisory firms from scratch tend to do it because there's some kind of vision around, I want to give advice to clients and I want to serve them a certain way. And I'm pretty good at doing this and getting clients to come in. And like just that, you know, that like <laughs> mental brain makeup is often not the same as the one that's really good at hiring systems, which means the thing you're really good at to get your business off the ground ends up being the thing that starts breaking it later when you when you find this gap around, oh, all these operations systems are getting a little messy. Yeah, like that's such a good point. And you can't really be the master of all in the business and neither can your team. So then it becomes tough. And um, I call CEOs sometimes chief of everything officers. So taking off one hat at a time to focus on your passion and what you're truly good at is the goal for all business owners, I would say. Well, and I find there's this dynamic that... No, I feel like sometimes is is almost celebrated in the in the business owner entrepreneurial world that you know when when we start businesses and and we're the CEO as as you I think you frame it well like we're the we're the chief everything officer and like I've done everything I build everything in the in the business you know there there's a lot of 
sayings out there around like just you you have to do whatever the business needs of you and 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 you know your role will shift over time as the business needs shift and like and you're you're so you're supposed to do that and you're a, a good CEO if you if you change and adapt to the business and and I think that's true to some extent to some extent but often I find like people take it to a natural extreme of oh I literally have to figure out how to do everything it is that my business needs done even the things I'm not really good at because, hey, the business needs it and someone's got to do it. So I guess that's me. And and we get stuck trying to solve the things that we're just really not actually good at solving in, yeah. in the business. And then at, at best, you're miserable because you're doing a bunch of work you don't actually like to do. And at worst, you're stuck because you can't actually figure out how to do it because it's just not how you're built and how your brain's wired. And And you get stuck if you're not ready to hire or at least outsource to say, like, maybe the best solution is – not to spend all my time trying to build the solution. My best solution is spend all my time trying to find someone else who can make it solved for me. Right. It's very like Dan Sullivan, who, not how. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, you have to make a decision. Do you have more time or do you have more money? And then from there also, like you said, the who, not why, finding the resources to get the job done. So for those just who aren't familiar, and I've never gone down this kind of road before, uh, can you just paint the picture for us? I mean, I know you like you you have a business that does outsource operations management. What does that actually mean? Like what what do you what do you do? Yes. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. So um, I am an operations consultant, and I consider Level Best an operations and process strategy consulting firm. So we partner with only financial advisory firms to work on their business. So for us, we're actually going in and setting up operation strategies and systems for the company. But then we work our way out of a job. So once we set up our systems, usually there's someone in the company that's managing the, the implementation we did. So I look at uh, our services in three levels. So all things operations when it comes to strategy, analysis, and implementation. So we start off with a strategic plan around systems and technology. So our foundations for strategy, for operations are around technology education, service offerings, and the client experience. From there, uh, we typically always have to do analysis work because we're not going to give um, cookie cutter recommendations. We get to know our clients and how they run their business. From there, we'll say, okay, based on how they currently offer services and their team size and their goals, how can we implement best practices that we've seen into their firm? So that's where the strategy and analysis come from. Then from there, if the recommendations are good and the firm wants to move forward, we then help with building out our recommendations, which means workflows, uh, technology integrations, and automations, training their team. So that's like our full high-level scope of what we do. So, so I guess I'm just trying to vision, like what, what kind of firm engages this? Like what, what size or stage are they are they at that they're that they're reaching out around something like this? Yeah, so I feel like we help with transitions. So we have firms of all sizes from 
those who have been in business for 15 months and they're saying, hey, things are going great. I have a great client flow, but am I systematized enough? I don't know. I haven't had time to audit my technology. So we have like those, I would say career changers. So those who decided to leave their full-time job to start their business. Um, Then we have the seasoned uh, solopreneur, I call them. So advisors who have a successful practice, uh, more lifestyle focused, and they're working alone and they want to save more time. So they may come to us or they're considering on hiring. So it's like, can I be more lean before I make this next hire? And then we have our top clients, which are the RIAs who are established. They have someone in-house that manages their operations, but they really don't have a good way to audit the way they are currently uh, doing business. And how big is a firm at that point? I mean, if they've got someone in-house who manages operations, that's usually you're already like north of $2 million of revenue at that point. Exactly. So those full-time ops person would be between, you know, $2 million upward and, and going. And then there's different levels to who that operations person in-house may be. Are they an associate? Are they a COO? But typically we're working with like a director of operations. Now for the solo advisors who may have a client relationship manager, we usually have people who have dual titles, right? For the smaller companies, they may have someone who manages uh, the work that we set up for them, but it's just not their full-time job. So I'm struck by those those three. So you get the sort of the like the the fast start firms, right? I launched a year or two ago. It's actually going really well. But you know, when I had my first one, two, three, five, ten clients, like I just did everything. Then I got twenty. Then I got thirty. And I usually find like somewhere around thirty to forty clients, right? Like in the early days, you have a lot of time and not a lot of clients. So like you can actually be fairly inefficient. It doesn't matter because like you don't have enough work to keep you busy through the day yet until you get to a certain number of clients. And then somewhere I find around 30 to 40 clients, like there's just so many clients and there's so many requests that they have. And there's so many things you need to do the service ones, plus onboard the new ones, plus remember to go market and prospect to get a couple more that like suddenly time that was very available starts getting really scarce. And firms start saying like, oh, maybe I actually have to figure out some of this like tech and system stuff right now because (laughs) I just kind of did it with like yellow pads and random Excel spreadsheets to keep track of things and like my email inbox. And it totally worked fine at one in five and 10 and 20 clients. But as I get to 30 and 40, like things just start, I was going to say breaking, not really breaking, but like things start slipping through the cracks. And, you know, the fact that it takes me five to 10 minutes to do something that should probably be 30 seconds in technology starts adding up when you've got a couple of dozen clients and that's like hours and hours every month of work that probably shouldn't be as manual as it is. Yes. Yes. That's such a great point. And I have a lot of conversations about yellow pads often. (laughs) So for the solo advisors, yes, the biggest challenge that they run into is that they don't understand the systems that they have in place. And so usually for advisors like that, I'm really trying to gauge or do they have a streamlining problem or an automation problem? 
And for those who are like more DIY people who have been able to dig into how they want their client experience to look, they usually just need to automate a little bit more. Whereas some people who aren't really into operations, the streamlining is really important for them to really get to that step two. So can you distinguish those a little bit more? I just, cause like, you're talking about streamlining versus automation. I feel like in a very deliberate, distinct manner when I think a lot of advisors basically use those terms interchangeably. <laughs> so like, can you just explain to us further, like what's the difference between I have a streamlining problem versus I have an automation problem? Yes. And I'll throw my third one in there, which is delegation problem. So every time I talk to a potential client to work with, I gauge where they're at in their business. And sometimes it's because I may have to refer them out too. So when you're looking at the pillars of operations, in my mind, um, I like to start off with streamlining. So the first thing that you want to do is make sure you have a repeatable process for your business and making sure it's documented. So most of the work that we do is around the client journey. So we want to make sure, do you have a repeatable system for prospect the onboarding review meeting process, things like things like that. And then if they don't, some of the things that I look for is like, oh, things are falling through the cracks. Um, I'm not able to track my client experience. So that's how I know, okay, it's a streamlining problem. So then phase two, there's an automation problem when advisors say, I'm not worried about my client journey. My clients are happy. We have good client retention. Um, things never fall through the cracks or they're usually screen sharing their CRM to show me how they track everything, but they're still busy. So it's like, okay, yes, workflows are great, but they can only get you so far. From there, we need to figure out where we can eliminate manual tasks. So that's where systems like Zapier come into play. Knowing how to integrate your two systems to save time. And that's really where a solopreneur would stop because the third option would then be, okay, I streamlined, I'm automated, my business is really lean. So the only thing left to do is you, you either do the work or you consider hiring or outsourcing someone to do the remaining tasks that are left for your business. Okay. So, so that helps a lot for, for context. So the, so the streamlining phase to, to me, uh, like as you're describing it, is much more around do, just do you actually have a system? Like is there a process, like a coherent process that flows from one step to the next doesn't have to flow automatically but like it it flows like we do these things we do them in a consistent manner we do them in this sequence and process because it totally you can't do anything to automate it if it doesn't happen in a consistent way in the first place because then it's basically not automatable because every time you do it differently so the the streamline phase it sounds like is all about have have you systematized in the, in the first place just can you show me a process of how this works. Yes, exactly. Um, and a lot of people that we work with, you know, they're they may be streamlined, but they may say, "Oh, I need an audit because I'm considering adding another service offering," or we're considering switching technology. So that's when you get into the point, like 
you know, operations isn't always for like that firm that just launched or that new firm. It may be a change right. in the services that cause you to take a second look. Okay. So, so streamlining. So I get it that that early stage advisor, I've just gotten my business going. Now suddenly I'm getting a decent number of clients, but particularly when we are the, we're in the early stages, like what I do for my first five clients is different than what I do for my next 10 clients because I'm still kind of figuring it out, which is different than what I do for the next 15 clients after that because by now I've really kind of figured out what my thing is, but it's different than what I did for the first 10 to 15 of my clients. So now like clients are all over the place in, in what they're getting. So that becomes the pain point for those solopreneurs in early stage, faster growth. So it starts with streamlining and just can we actually figure out how to turn this into a repeatable system? be able to document the steps so just so that we can streamline and have a process, like have an actual process process, not just I do things and clients like me and they seem to stick around. <laughs> exactly. The biggest challenge that I see for firms, like let's say two to four years, is that after the onboarding and the prospecting happens, it's, it gets reactive because they're like, okay, well, I've only been doing this for a year or two, so I don't really have a service calendar to service my ongoing clients and they get nervous about client retention. They still want to make sure they're adding the value on an ongoing basis. So a lot of advisors in that phase where they're just starting out usually work with us around, you know, first off, looking at their service offerings. Like, are you happy with them? Are you priced well? And then going into building out the service calendar and figuring out how technology ties into that as well. And so, so you're actually trying to help advisors build out like client service calendars. Here's the things that I'm going to do for my clients throughout the year. A hundred percent. So I require all new clients to go through what we call foundations first, and it's the foundations for your operations. Every firm, no matter what size, needs it in my eyes. And I just started implementing this last year and it was amazing. So we do a technology audit. And that's around the client journey. And we don't recommend new systems. We just maximize what they're already using. And then the service model audit. So that's tiers of service like financial planning, investment management, and breaking that down. And then the service calendar. That's what we look at before we get into the workflows and the uh, mapping of the client journey. Okay. So... So I guess I'm curious is what because I I feel like there wasn't a ton of discussion historically around service calendars. It's really like it's it's really just started cropping up over the past I don't know th- three or four years that more firms are going deeper and deeper into financial planning and and not just using the financial plan to establish the relationship to get the client up front, but actually like doing ongoing systematized financial planning where all of a sudden this becomes a little bit more of a pain point and you have to figure uh you have to figure out how to systematize the ongoing i guess as i'm wondering like what what are you seeing that are are cropping up and coming onto service like client service calendars what do those look like in practice for advisors yeah, so that's a, a great question. So for Level Best, we actually, I it hit me like over the past month that we look at it differently than what I typically see in the industry. We okay. create an internal operational 
calendar. So when we build the service calendar, we are looking at meetings, of course, but also all of the operational tasks that happen internally. So whether it's billing, newsletters, um, whatever it may be, because that's what we use to build our workflows. So what Mm. we tell firms is like, you should have a service calendar paired with each service offering. So your service offering is like what you're providing to clients. The service calendar is, okay, how am I going to do it? So we put all things in there, things that are automated, um, not automated, um, what's recurring, and then what's not recurring. And then when we break out, um, okay, the different types of activity that's happening throughout the year, we actually assign it by roles and responsibilities. So for example, the marketing assistant may do the newsletter. Um, The advisor is responsible for holding the meeting, but the client service associate is responsible for scheduling the meeting. So when you look at that service calendar for March, your task and who's responsible for it in a high level is on there. But another reason why I like to do it this way is because sometimes firms are over communicating to their clients through Mm -hmm. all the automated things that are going out. And so it helps them spread out the different um, items that are going off throughout the year. Oh, because I I may end out, I may end up clustered if I'm not careful where like, you know, have you thought about whether your quarterly newsletter is actually too overlapping to your quarterly meeting cadence, which is too overlapping to the fact that you have to do your quarterly invoice notification. So like your clients are getting, you know, three things from you in the span of about three weeks near the end of every quarter. And then they don't hear from you for two and a half months until it queues up again. If you just spread it out a little, A, your clients would feel like they hear from you more regularly. And B, uh, you, maybe your team will feel a little bit less stressed or you'll feel a little bit less stressed because you're not doing meeting scheduling and invoices and quarterly newsletter that are all coming at the exact same time and probably didn't actually need to be. <laughs> like you yes. may have accidentally inflicted that on yourself, not realizing it. <laughs> exactly. And another big thing I like about the service calendar, this is when the lights come on for the team. So if you have a team they it it just helps with that teamwork. A lot of people feel like they're making more of an impact on the client journey when they see, okay, the non-advisors in the firm are actually doing a lot to make this happen. So I, I like that too about it as well. Interesting. So so I get that on on streamline. Mm-hmm. So now take me further into automation. Like what <laughs> What starts showing up here in automation now that I think we have a clearer picture on Streamline? Yes. So the biggest thing with automation um, is to look at your technology systems. And I look at automation and integration as two separate things. So integrations are those direct links with different systems. So like advice pay to Wealthbox, for example, you can, you know, sync data over, but you still have to click the button. Whereas like automation actually eliminates the task. It creates triggers for things to happen. Mm. So what we do is look at that's a helpful distinction to me just to think about. Like the integration just means the data can flow from A to B, but the automation 
like, but you still have to click a button. The automation means you, you don't even have to click a button. Like the thing <laughs> happens and then whatever was supposed to come next may be a button you have to click. But like the, the actual action part goes away and is automated with an automation, not with an integration. Yes. And this is where advisors start to get hesitant because you have to trust the process in order for the automation to work. So um, I like Zapier. We don't set up Zaps in-house, but we work with um, a, a referral partner to make sure that gets set up for our clients who are using our implementation services. But what we like what we tell them to do is when we map out the workflow, we just highlight, okay, like here's like 10 things that could be automated through Zapier. And so once your systems are documented, we just go line by line and eliminate the task, uh, which is nice. So for those who aren't familiar, just what's Zapier? Yes. So Zapier is a third-party system that allows two systems to speak to each other. So pretty much if you have two systems, you identify uh, a trigger for an automation to occur. So if you want someone to schedule a call with you, and then once that happens, you automatically want them added into your CRM, that's basically... Zapier would make that happen, make those two systems speak to each other without uh, a direct integration. So this is a workaround for when when you're using advisor tech that is not already integrate. Like it won't, you know, for all those that say like, I wish my tools would integrate more with each other. Like Zapier is your workaround if the vendors have not figured this out for themselves, how to make the thing integrate. Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and then who... Who do you like refer out to or like to use when advisors need help with Zapier? I refer out to Sphinx Automation for all of our uh, Zapier referrals because it's like if someone goes to them for automation, like I said, and they're not streamlined, they come to us. And then once we streamline them, streamline their systems, they go back to Sphinx Automation. Okay. Okay. So for those who are listening, this is uh, episode 329. So uh, if you're interested, go to www.kitsis.com slash 329. And we'll have a link out to folks like Zapier and Sphinx Automation if, if anyone's interested in going further down this down this rabbit hole. So so I get it now. Like Part one, you're streamlining and systematizing to say, like, can we clearly document the exact things that we do for clients, what we do in each stage and how it flows? Because if I've gotten really good at documenting that and and writing it out in the first place, then stage two here, you literally just to get to low line by line, okay, your your client onboarding process has 12 steps. All right, which which of these could we potentially automate? Which could we make easier with an integration or make go away entirely with an automation? And you may not get all the steps to go away, but if you go from 12 to nine, that's really nice when you do it on a repeatable basis for each new client. Yeah. And I think like between streamlining and automating, there's just a lot of big things. Like this is where different parts of the business come together. Like I feel like for streamlining and automating, a lot of advisors don't realize, but your marketing really comes into this as well, because you're going to need branded 
items, whether you're sending a newsletter to a client, everyone thinks about marketing just for prospects, but we're always working with someone in marketing to to make the deliverable for client onboarding, to um, have the deliverable for the prospecting process and the newsletters and things like that. There's a lot of um, automation that can happen in your email marketing software. I've experienced that myself personally too. So now I can visualize as well. So once once we've gone through this process, you know, ideally maybe our our 12-step onboarding process is down to seven steps because we automated five of them. Most of the other seven are at least a little easier because we figured out some integrations or we made some zappier zaps that move things around to make it a little easier. So it's it's more expedited than it was. It used to take me an hour. Now it takes me 20 minutes. Great improvement. But then stage three is like, okay, now that you have a really clear systematized, documented seven-step, 20-minute process, do you need to actually be the one that does that? Or is it so <laughs> systematized and straightforward that you could now train someone else to do it and have them do it for you? And and now, you, now you're off to the delegation stage because you don't really want to delegate the messy hour-long process, this messy 12-step hour-long process. It is more cost-efficient to delegate the seven-step, 20-minute process because you went through the streamlining and automation. But as the advisor, at some point, you still shouldn't be doing the 20-minute thing either. Someone has to do it. But yes. it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be you at some point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think um the good thing about the phase one is like since everything's documented, we usually like to assign who's doing what as well. So when it's time to hire, you can easily look at your the steps, the seven steps uh, in your workflow and say, okay, what do I feel comfortable uh, delegating? So then that takes you into the conversation. Okay, with these, let's say there's 10 tasks that you've come up with throughout your whole client journey that you want to delegate, what, what type of role is that? You know, so like I tell an advisor, if you're not 100% client facing, um, you can probably delegate more. So deciding, do you want someone who can give planning advice on the team in addition to you? Or are you okay with being the only person that gives advice? Are you okay with still doing the financial plans? Or are you just looking for someone who isn't licensed to give advice, but they can help you with all of the other things that you uh, do in your business. When I look at um, the servicing team, I look at it in three buckets. So you have advice and expertise, then you have operations, and then you have administration. And so then we're able to gauge, you know, what buckets do we need to fill? So this helps now with further context of kind of the, the three types of advisors that that you end up working with most often. So you have kind of the faster growing solo. So I built my business. I started it. I'm actually getting a bunch of clients. You know, goodness gracious, it's wonderful. They're coming in, but oh, oh wow, like there's a lot of work to do now that I'm getting a bunch of these clients. So they get 30 to 40 clients in after two, three, four years and just run run face first into either a streamlining wall because they were just doing work for clients to get it done and get them and get paid but they they never really built any particular systems and streamlined them or you get the advisor who maybe 
is a little wired that way. Like I do know some advisors out there who just, their brains think in terms of systems and process. They're actually pretty good at creating their own systems and process. So like they, they get further down the road, but at some point they still whack into a wall of, there's just all these integrations that need to be set up and I could probably automate some things with workflows and Zapier, but I'd like, I just don't have the time because I was actually good at streamlining. So I got all the way to 50 something clients before I hit this wall, but now I really don't have time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I got 50 clients to, to service. Like I, I just need someone that can come in and take some of my processes and make them more autograded and set up more of these integrations that I don't, that I don't have time for because it's going well and I'm growing, but like, I, I don't have the time to figure this stuff out or necessarily hire a full-time person because I'm, I'm not necessarily hiring a, a full-time deep ops manager with 50 clients. I might hire like a client service administration associate who can do the task work, but they're usually not necessarily systems builders. Like they, they can execute the system. I can delegate to them. They're not necessarily the builder of it. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And I think um, with the the solos and multi-advisor firms another thing that comes up for them is when their their niche changes or they're adding a new type of service which is when they need to really fully build out an, a new system right. so then you get the seasoned solopreneurs so they probably got further in this they've done some streamlining and some automation because just you kind of have to do that at some point to get to be more seasoned, even if you do it more slowly because it's not necessarily your your gift. But at some point, like my revenue is good, my client base is good. I would just like to be able to service them in less time because I'm trying to rebalance my my work-life balance, right? I did the ability phase. Now I want to do the enjoy the thing I built phase. But they're still not necessarily wired for really systematizing, streamlining, and automating. And so that's where the seasoned solopreneur comes to you. Like, Sharice, I have some systems. I don't think they're working great. I'm pretty sure we could do things faster and more automated, but I don't actually know how to do that. Because if I did, I would have done that in the first place, but I don't know how to do that. That's why I need your help. And and uh, and that's when they show up. Yeah. So they show up to your spot on with the lifestyle change. So this revolves around the service offerings because a lot of people say, you know, I, I was working with anyone that could fog a mirror, you know, and so now they want to get more lean and work with, be more intentional with the clients that they're working with. So that's when we have the conversation. Well, what do you want your life to look like? Um, how do you want to manage your business? And then we can go in and really talk about the, the change of services, so you people may find a better way of doing things or they a lot of a lot of the firms that we work with in this seasoned solopreneur were primarily investment management and they want to add financial planning into it. So how do you charge for it? Uh, what are the best practices? What are other people doing? And then from there, we're, you know, creating that new model with them uh, to offer to their existing clients, which is, is, is really cool to see. And then you get the more established RAs that that have a couple million dollars of revenue and may even have a an operations manager, but they're 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 still stuck on this. Mm-hmm. So like, why are they stuck? I mean, like <laughs> if they have someone in the role, like what's uh, what are they coming to you for when they already have someone nominally in this seat in the first place? 
Yes. So it's typically a multi-advisor situation. So trying to get all of the advisors to deliver the same consistent client experience and they really need a facilitator to come into the Mm. business and guide that conversation to get everyone on the same page. Then from there, well, how do we leverage our back office a little bit better? Because we do have different servicing teams. So with that third step of hiring and delegating, we do have to have that conversation of an accountability chart. When we build accountability charts, we stick with the servicing teams. Um, and that so that's really what they're coming for. And once we go through mapping it, it's really me training uh, the advisors and the back office on the new system. I always draw the line. I'm not an advisor. So the advisors have the planning hat and I'm just doing the logistics of how to build out and streamline that planning process in an efficient way. So can you explain further, like what does it mean in building out an accountability chart of the service teams? Yeah, so um, the term accountability chart I heard from Rocket Fuel, uh, the book. I love the book. Um, So what we do is look at, it goes back to that service calendar. So you have all of your tasks, ongoing tasks that need to happen for all of the clients on a, at a high level basis, but how, who's responsible for actually executing on the different responsibilities. So we have the advice and expertise. So those are all licensed professionals. Typically there may be CFPs that are paraplanners. So it's not only the those who are client facing, but those who can develop recommendations and deliver it to the client. And then we have operations. The operations people that we think about are those who are making sure the client service calendar is actually being delivered and executed, making sure all things that are happening behind the scenes are uh, flowing. And then you have like administration, which is more of client servicing. So those people who do the client support task, like scheduling the meetings, um, anytime a client needs something that's non-advice driven, they're reaching out to them. So depending on the firms that we have, we look at their problems, their existing team, and make a, a recommendation. And client segmentation for the for the bigger, bigger firms, that comes into the conversation too. So top clients may work with the more senior advisors, whereas like, you know, the smaller clients may work with the up and coming advisor. And so to the extent that you built out the client service calendar, here's the things we do, the deliverables we provide, the meetings we have, the services we offer, who gets to interact with what, where, and how uh, uh, from the client end. The accountability chart is essentially going through each of those items that we do for clients then and just documenting all the way down to who's accountable for making sure this step happens, who's accountable for making sure this step happens, who's accountable for making sure this step happens, and like just actually documenting out the name that goes next to, or I guess the job title, because you might have multiple people uh, in a role, but like the, the name or the role that goes next to each item of each step of that process so that you can actually really systematize it and just track and monitor and manage it. 
Yes. So it's like roles and responsibilities. So um, I don't like seeing I mean, for, you know, we're talking about the larger firms now and there are mo- multiple servicing teams. So it's not Sharice does this and Michael does that. It's like, OK, what are the actual roles for your firm? So when people get stuck with high, oh, who should I hire next? Well, it's easy. Look at your accountability chart, which is really all of the job descriptions in summary of like, let's say 10 people on the team and putting it into a chart to see, okay, here's the different servicing teams. So when someone leaves, you just replace that role right. and and continue to move on. I guess and just the the firm can't necessarily do it because this is a level of being more strategic around, right? Like it's it's not just what it's not just what you do for clients, it's what you're systematizing into your client service calendar. And it's not just Bob does this and Sarah does that. It's the client service administrator role does this and the uh, operations manager role does that. And just the 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 strategic layer of how to actually do this as a system across the firm, I'm guessing just like that's the gap that they don't they can't necessarily solve for internally. Like they're they may have an operations manager, but the person is not strategic enough or familiar enough with how other firms do this to just to be able to figure out how they actually systematize this to the next level in their own firm. Yes, um, exactly. So a lot of advisors don't have some like that strategic partner in house. So they will work with us and it's usually six months, you know, at least to go through this full experience I just explained to you where we can strategize and I'm non-biased. My job's not on the line. I'm not fearful of the automation because we see that too, where we are recommending to automate because it's going to make the business better, make the business more lean. But if someone's job was to schedule meetings the past 15 years, that's really intimidating. So as the business evolves and the tech evolves, how can you make your team not be so fearful of that change. That's very, very difficult to navigate. Yeah, it reminds me, um, I used to call this the Betty problem. So an uh, uh, advisor I knew a long time ago, like his his name was John. He'd, he'd built the advisory firm with a couple of partners. They were sort of like in this zone. They were coming up on on $2 million of revenue and and 11 or 12 staff members. And um and their operations manager was this was this woman named Betty, uh, who'd been at the firm for like twenty years. I think she was John's like original original assistant when the business started, uh, and it was just the two of them. And then it grew and it grew, and over a whole bunch of years, like they they got up to a couple million dollars, and they hired more uh, client service and and administrative folks who Betty then trained and managed because she'd done it forever and she knew how everything was done in the firm. Uh, but they'd hit this wall because the reality was Betty was like really good at doing the administrative and operations work because she'd done it for a long time. She wasn't really terribly good at like strategically systematizing and figuring out how to scale because she'd never been in a business that was larger than that firm in the first place. Like she'd always lived in small businesses. And so like wonderful in getting the firm to where it was, had no idea how to grow it to the next level. And just one of those, like, right, the, the old saying of what got you here won't get you there. Like, they, you know, they, like, I called this the Betty problem. Like, John had the Betty problem because Betty was, a, like, a wonderful, absolute key member to the to the firm that had unequivocally gotten them to where they were. 
and was the absolute utter bottleneck preventing them from growing anymore because she didn't know how to go further and they didn't and they didn't do want, want to do anything to piss off Betty. <laughs> like they didn't want to demote or remove her because she was very valued and she'd been there for a long time. But like they Betty couldn't figure out how to grow them and they couldn't figure out how to grow around Betty. And so like yes. they got they got stuck in the like my loyal assistant who's been with me forever kind of scenario uh because the business grew larger than her skill set was was like really what it came down to. And and they they couldn't figure out how to manage around it. Yes. Oh, this is such a great point. Um, the, the past year to year and a half, I've been working in a coaching capacity with operations leads or client service associates who are now managing the systems that we set up and mm-hmm. helping them get to the next level of the, of managing and being more of an impact uh, to the firm. So Every time we work with advisors, we always ask, do you already have someone who you think could manage the systems that uh, we've set up? Now, Mm -hmm. it's 50-50. Like sometimes we have firms where they're able to take it and run with it. And the person on staff has me as an accountability person to help them figure out how to navigate the challenges. I usually like to go through a quarter with them one-on-one and then usually they're fine but then the other 50 percent they don't have someone so then we have to figure out you know is it time do you want to outsource for this is there someone that can manage it for now or some people may decide not to hire for managing the system so then from the business end, what what does it cost for working with you going through this like for the firm that has these pain points and, and needs help in, in getting through it, like how does it work to actually engage you around this? Yeah, so we have uh, three tiers of service. So our first offering is Foundations First. So that's where we do all of the strategy around your tech, service offerings, and service calendar. So that package starts off at 5000 starting. Um, and then we have complexity things that we go through to figure out if it needs to be higher. The second tier is called Master Your Map, and that's for usually the career changers or the solopreneurs. And in that offering, it's consulting. And then that's where we do the workflow mapping and you get your full toolkit. I call them process playbooks. When you work with us there, those um, services range between two to $3,000 per month. And then we have our top package, which is be your level best. So everything I just said, plus the technology setup and the team training, that offering uh, starts at 5000 per month. So be your level best usually is about six to 12 months, depending on how fast uh, we get through it. So foundations first, where you're just trying to get in and understand their current process and systems and what's going on that's like that's just like a one five thousand dollar one-time consultation or like single scope engagement yes it's a one-time offering single scope and then master your map is we're actually figuring out the workflow mapping the client service calendar or what ties to what 
So you said two to three thousand dollars a month, and like, how long do those engagements typically last? Like, how long does it take to get through that? Yeah, it typically takes about uh, three to four months. So we do two-hour intensives, and it's like just very straightforward prospecting, onboarding, the review meeting process. So it could be completed in three months. Um, it just depends if people need okay. more support after that. Okay. And so it's interesting on sort of thinking about that, like. As you get all the way up to, well, I guess so. As you're going through that, so I may I may do three to four months, two to three thousand dollars. This is kind of a like six to twelve thousand dollar engagement for me to just get my process and systems like figured out and written mm-hmm. down for all those who are not are not good at figuring them out, writing them down, and 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 putting them into a system. The ones that then want like the full on tech setup and training. You know, all in, you may be looking at a, a thirty to sixty thousand dollar engagement, like five thousand dollars a month for for six to twelve months. So, you know, if I'm if I've got these pain points and I'm not ready to hire full time, this is much less expensive than hiring full time, right? If I'm trying to like fractionally ease into it, uh, but I got to be a certain size and have a certain pain point just to want to build that out. Which I'm guessing is why you get either faster growing firms, well seasoned solos, like firms with a couple million dollars of revenue who have these pain points who just those are those are firms like if you're at those size points and you're experiencing that growth momentum or that efficiency pain like thirty sixty thousand dollars to get this solved for your business for the next three five ten years like really good deal <laughs> yes and it's it's so funny like I worked with a firm like four years ago and they're like yeah we're still using your workflows and I'm like mm-hmm. are you really <laughs> you know so um, but we typically find people may come back like every two to three years but it's not for a full new engagement. It may just be like, you know, a two hour intensive or a VIP day right. where it's like, hey, we've had this big change. Can we work through this together? Um, so it it it's works pretty well with refining it. So for the technology setup, I used to not have uh, strict requirements on it, but now I do. I require the firm to have someone on their team or planning to hire someone on their team to manage our systems. Because uh, when I first started Level Best, I would build out systems for a lot of different people. Like as I've grown, I've been more selective. But what would happen is they were so dependent on us to manage it. The advisor didn't want to figure it out. So I think the master map has been very successful. Like last year, we got a lot of good comments on it because it's really organizing what you do, what's in your head and making sure it is repeatable and making sure you're not missing anything. So, so then what does this look like from the, the firm end for you? Like, do you have a team that does this? Or are you doing all the consulting work directly? Like, how does it actually work from the level best consulting services perspective? Yes. So I definitely have a team. I am the only consultant right now. So for every advisor that we work with, uh, they work with me as the consultant. And then I also have an operations analyst. So I would think of an operations analyst equivalent to like a pair planner. So the analyst goes in and prepares the recommendations for the clients, and then I present them. So depending on the level of expertise for the analysts, they may cover the workflow piece or the strategy piece as well. Um, And then I also personally have an operations manager that I hired last year um, that 
was really inspired by the advisors that I've worked with over the years and just seeing how much success they've had with having someone on their team in operations. So I, so I guess it's distinguished from me. You said like, personally, I have my own operations manager. Like, is that like a Sharice thing as separate from the level best <laughs> business? So um, that's a great question. So the operations manager is for level best, but I just... Personally, they're helping me so much as the business owner. It's changing my day-to-day life. Um, So sometimes it feels like she's here for me personally. (laughs) (laughs) I have great testament to the value of good good operations management support. It's amazing what a lift you get. (laughs) So then what what comes next for you and Level Best from here? Like you've you built out these uh, service tiers and kind of the the three primary advisor types that tend to have these pain points that that come for them. So like what comes next for you? Yeah. So I would say I'm definitely at a crossroad because the last few years I've been very blessed to have a good funnel. Uh, but with wait lists coming up, you know, every year, it made me really think about how I'm running my business. So I did a lot of work on the back end last year. So what we're doing now is really trying to create more educational resources for the industry. So the best practices that we're seeing can be more accessible. I see a big gap in continuing education for operations professionals. And then I also see a large gap for firms who are starting out. Like they want help, they want resources, um, but you know they can't afford the thirty to sixty thousand dollars. I bootstrap my business on my own, so I know what it feels like. Um, so that's what I'm working on. The past two years, I wrote a curriculum for everything I consult on. So now we're figuring out how we're going to uh, deliver that in the coming year. So, so what, it, like, what will that offering look like? How will that work? So right now we've, I launched one. So we have FinOps Co-op, which is um, continuing education and community for operations professionals. So those people in firms that are helping run the systems uh, for the business, managing the technology, we have a great uh, community there. We just launched actually um you know, recently. And that looks like we have different uh, industry experts who are speaking each month. And they are actually giving us toolkits as well when they present. I offer office hours once to twice a month as well. And then they have a platform um, circle that they can also uh, have peer-to-peer knowledge. So the goal there is peer-to-peer knowledge, uh, continuing education, and then also support in your career because a lot of the firms, there's not a second operations person. So that's the reason uh, for that. Interesting. And so what it, what does it cost to be part of the the FinOps co-op community? FinOps co-op is annual. Fee is $1,200 a month, or you can pay monthly at $125 per month. Wait, $1,200 a month or $1,200 a year? Yes. Okay. So yeah, different if you pay monthly or annual. Okay. So $1,200 a year or $125 per month. So mm-hmm. I guess as I'm just kind of thinking like price to that you know, operations manager and small to mid-sized firm where, you know, I, like I can, I can make that math work as a business owner. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a lot of advisors, I wouldn't say a lot, some are questioning like, you know, well, we don't, we're not focused on operations right now. We don't have operations projects right now, but it's really the continuing education piece that no one's talking about, you know, like if advisors get the continuing education, then how, where will their team get the continuing education? And mm -hmm. I have a small mastermind group for past clients, COOs, and they're telling me they're going outside of the industry to level up their career. Um, the operations people in the community want to become leaders, but they aren't getting that opportunity to develop their skill set. So it, it's something that I really hope the industry can uh, make a change in. And so ideal fit, like it's not necessarily, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think of these in, in, in roles within firms. Like this isn't necessarily the end client service administrator doing administrative and support tasks. This is really built around the ops managers, directors, levels. Like I'm, I've got a firm that's got three, five, ten. 20 people like i've i've got some systemsy things i actually need to figure out and build and like that that's the community and space that you're trying to to create and hold for them Yes, great question. So we in the community right now i i do want to clarify um because operations is its own thing we mm -hmm. have people who are operations managers at compliance companies but they manage the technology they manage the service calendar they're building the workflows but then we also have people who are working within an RIA and they're doing the same exact thing right so pretty much you know those people that are managing the technology creating SOPs um you know, all those things where business owners say, I'm working on the business, that's actually their job. They're taking that, those tasks off of the business owner's plate and managing it for right. them. A lot of people in our community also are, have uh, team leadership uh, duties as well. So we're trying to make mm -hmm. find speakers to talk about that as well. Interesting. So we're, where were they going outside the industry? <laughs> so Google, um, I've heard Fortune 500 companies, uh, we're all reading the same books, you know, so like E-Myth and Checklist Manifesto, just really learning from different authors, but there's no one to really help them with specific uh, questions. Right. And so that's, that's, the, that's the focus of the, the content in the community. Yeah, exactly. So that's for FinOps Co-op, but I also see an, an opportunity as well for educational resources for those new advisors um, as well with uh, building out their systems. So like a, a self-directed DIY, build your own, you know, build your own stage one ops for new advisors. Exactly. Yes. I think that's really important. I, that's who I worked with, you know, when I first launched and now, uh, I have a lot of career changers that I work with and I think everyone says, so what are the best practices? And it's like, okay, Sharice, like you can either tell, talk about this one-on-one -on -one or create an opportunity for everyone to share their knowledge with each other. So the, the like new advisor DIY ops course, that that's a future thing you want to move towards. That's that's not necessarily one that you've created yet. You started with FinOps Co-op. 
Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. So that that's future, future opportunities. Stay tuned if you're an advisor in that <laughs> uh, in that bucket. So so have you as you've gone down this road, like what surprised you the most about like building a consulting business? I know there are a lot of interesting parallels of what what we go through in building a consulting business and what advisors go through in building advisory businesses because both at the end of the day like you're you're selling knowledge you're selling wisdom you're selling intellectual capital like it's a service business you're charging fees enough to justify them like there's a lot of lot of parallels between the two so what's what surprised you the most just from the business end of trying to build and scale a consulting business back to the advisor community yeah so i consider myself like i definitely was focused on being like a freelancer. So just working alone, having my own clients. I wanted the lifestyle, freedom in my schedule, but I decided to become a founder. So I'm just grateful when I first started, I kept my head down, I worked hard and a lot of people kept referring business to me. So I had to decide what I was going to do. The hardest thing when I first launched was getting used to the up and downs of income. Mm. So I hired a financial coach. I truly believe in the financial uh, space. So um, I hired a financial coach to help me like create a system for the unpredicted income. And I was single when I um, launched my business. So I had to figure it out off of one income and I worked in the industry. So I couldn't necessarily do this. I couldn't work with other RIAs when I was working full time for an RIA. So I had to make that decision if I was going to quit my job and go all in. So just curious, like what? What well, was the system to deal with the <laughs> unpredictable income, right? Because you know, consulting work in particular, you know, you you get a couple of clients and they're and they're paying well, and like you can have a couple of months of really good income, and then they wind down, and all of a sudden the income goes to zero if they all wind down at the same time, which is common early on because if you get a whole bunch of clients who are doing all the service work, which means your business development slows down for a few months while you're doing it. So there's this like feast or famine cycle. Yes. That hits a, <laughs> a lot when you're getting going. Like eventually you get enough of the network and reputation that there's there's some flow of new business coming in even when you're busy. So it, it yeah. levels out a little, but not not the beginning. Mm-hmm. So what, like, what was the system to deal with the unpredictable and stable <laughs> income? Yeah. So I, just keeping the expenses down like for personal and for the business, but I lived in my finances. Like I just looked at it every single morning and getting on an automated savings plan was really big for the the tax piece of it. I think that's the biggest shocker when you become an employee to a contractor. Um, but I just lived in it and I didn't hire. I did it all by myself back then. I The first website I built, I'm just like, I don't, I'm grateful that people came to work with me. But um, I just really like put all my energy towards it and try to be as lean as possible. And so I, I always find it fascinating to uh, like look back at the the – the websites that we build for our first businesses, like for anyone who's built and launched, you know, almost everybody does it on a shoestring budget. They're standing up themselves, or like today, you're I don't know you're using Wix or Squarespace. It's been different different 
you know, sort of low cost DIY providers over the over the years. But you know, it always fascinates me. On the one end, you look back at those and you're like, wow. That's really kind of embarrassing by modern standards. I'm really thankful <laughs> anybody decided to work with me. But the flip side is like, but I'm here. Yes. Like people did. Because uh, I've seen advisors that get really focused on like, well, you know, I really got to launch with a really high quality website and it's going to cost all these thousands and thousands of dollars out of the mm. gate. Like, I don't know if I can afford it. Uh, and and maybe you can, maybe you can't. But I'm always fascinated by how many people reflect on how awful their first website is. I mean, like that's kind of the point. Like, but they're still here. Like, yes. I, you know, I don't want to say that websites don't matter because I'm really big on websites and marketing funnels and and what you can do with them. But uh, you know, just the reality for almost any advisor is your first few clients don't come from your website. Like, they come from your hustle. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you start doing stuff and getting known in your community a little, and people start checking you out, and then your website starts to starts to matter. Yes. But the first few out of the gate, like. It tends to come from the hustle, must more than the website, which is why so many folks who start their businesses and and, and are are long term successful reflect on how awful their first website was. Like, but but they're here. Yeah, like I think I don't remember. I would say maybe the first year, year and a half, I worked with fifteen firms, and I was just emailing everyone, like, "Hey, love your website." I was working at a multi billion dollar firm before. And I really was drawn to the startup lifestyle. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, But those first firms I worked with became raving clients. And it Mm. was all word of mouth. I didn't know anything about marketing. And I kept my head down. Like I just was so regimented. Like what I ate, how I slept. I was just very in a routine and that took me far. Uh, But then I had to pivot because I needed more time to be strategic. And I was seeing things happening in my business and I didn't know how to solve them. It wasn't going to be the work that was going to take me to the next level. So what, like, what was the wall you were hitting that said, oh, wait, I need to, I need to pivot. Yes. So um, looking at the cells, so new entrants in my space were coming in. And so the sales process was a little bit more challenging. Uh, Everyone loved my story when I first started, but I never really had like a system on how to sell. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things, I, I think one of the first things I invested in, there was I think marketing and sales. I didn't know how to hold a sales conversation. I would just go in, talk about what I do, how much it costs, and that's really it. I don't I didn't have like a follow-up process. So I did the genuine sales course with Nancy Bleaky about how to guide those conversations with intention and it changed the game for me. Like no matter what other people were doing and how the new entrants were coming in. I was focused on, okay, what do we do best? How are we different? And making sure like we talk about next steps that helped our sales process and saved me time. Mm-hmm. I'm not wasting time talking to people that aren't really interested. I'm only focusing on um, those who were mutually beneficial and interested in moving forward. And so that was, that's, um, that was Nancy Blakey's, uh, a genuine sales course. You know, she she does that out to the advisor community, but you use that, you know, for 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 working with the advisors as well works equally well, I guess. 
Yeah, I, exactly. I a lot of the stuff that I use myself, I just networking and I'm like, oh, that's great. I need that myself. So yes, when I did the program, I was with, you know, I think six other advisors and me, but it still was helpful and I was able to apply it to my business. So what was the low point for you on the on the journey? Um, hiring. Hiring and as I was scaling the cost of service. So it's like I would hire people and then I'm like, oh, like your price point isn't high enough to support this person. So making decisions on HR, financials, service offerings, um, that the past two years have, have been really challenging for me. And it's like, am I good at this? Do I want to do this? Mm. And just spread so thin. Um, I've had a really hard time with building a team. I think I looked too much into what financial planning firms do, but like, that's where we're different. Like how we scale our businesses, like for consulting, you don't have 20 year clients ongoing paying you like right. it's always revolving. So you have to keep that in mind. And there's not a lot of people that have consulted with financial planning firms. So I would hire those who were operations managers um, and who were back office, but they weren't used to providing advice to these firms. So it, it was kind of challenging to figure out where to put them in my business. Interesting. Yeah, it, it is one of the things that I, I feel like to some extent we we sometimes take for granted in the advisory world, particularly with the growth of AUM and then subscription models. Like there is a real power in how much easier scaling and hiring gets when your business is recurring revenue based. And like I don't want to belittle how hard it is to hire and scale in any environment as though it's supposed to be easy because you're you're a recurring revenue firm, but just there are some things that get easier around planning for uh, for hires and supporting them and supporting the payroll commitment that comes with it when the bulk of your revenue is recurring and resets every year that you notice really quickly if it doesn't and you constantly have to live by, am I getting enough sales opportunities coming in to keep a steady flow of business that might only last three, six, 12 months at a time? Because now I'm like, I don't just have to support myself. I've got other mouths to feed now. Yeah. And it's very stressful. And I, I realize it's all about mindset. Like that's one thing I have been working on is mentally, I'm a leader. It's it's not even like I'm not making that up. Like I have people on my team. I'm talking to other business owners. And so when sometimes it's just too much pressure where you're just always providing advice but you're never getting advice for your business and it, and that can be challenging so taking a moment and finding that time when you're always trying to look for the next next client like okay when can i make time for me in the business and i had to let go like the people on my team now they are leaders at level best and i trust them because I ha I have that mindset now. I feel confident to be able to lead a team internally and not only my clients. I was only focused on the clients for so long. And I think a lot of people that are in that practitioner role, mm -hmm. sometimes we get caught up in the cells and things like that. But, you know, my team has helped us break revenue months and like 
then it's like, okay, well, Sharice is burnt out because all she's been doing is selling and bringing in clients, but, you know, I'm not developing internally. And someone told me before, you know, you grow from within. And so I had to have a big reality check. I was like, you know, if I, I like working with the team and if I want to do this, I truly need to focus on the infrastructure of my company and really develop other leaders within the firm to do this. And it was very hard for me because I started my business very early in my career. I didn't really have management experience, so I had to figure it out on my own. Um, but it's it's been very rewarding to be on the other side of that. Where did you ultimately go to try to learn and figure this stuff out? Like was it books, courses, programs, yes. something else? Like what what worked to actually help you get get through that transition? A combination of things. So um, I'm in a mastermind group that I actually started. So it's called like the Team Leadership Mastermind Group. We meet monthly to talk about you know the challenges that we have. I read a few books. And then the two biggest uh, resources was my business coach. And then I also um, did a lot of work with the SBDC um, and it's a national organization. They give free consulting on HR, accounting, everything. I spent a lot of time with them here in Houston uh, over the past year. And then SCORE Mentors, they also give you a free mentor and through that, I worked with someone who had experience at a Fortune 500 company in HR. I worked with him and he taught me like best practices on how to navigate my hiring woes. And these people are really trained. Like they work with small businesses all the time. So they understand like, okay, how, what's your cash flow like? Okay. So when we see businesses with cash flow like this, or um, when we see certain situations where you can't retain client or teams, it's about, you know, the infrastructure of your business. So let's get a financial person on the phone. Like they are incredible. That really changed the game for me with no, no investment. And then my business coach was also able to help me with like the mindset shift to scale up. And and then how did you find the mastermind group? Yes. So I started the mastermind group and <laughs> Or after, that'll solve it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need one, I can't find one. So I just made one. Yeah. I actually have two mastermind groups. Um, you know, I meet with COOs monthly and then I meet with people who manage teams, so partners and a combination of COOs. So after all of my, you know, my friends that are also entrepreneurs, you know, after so long in this industry, your colleagues become friends, right? So after talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, I'm like, hey, I want to start a mastermind group. And everyone's like, yes, please. I'm having so much trouble, like, managing my team. I have no one to talk to. And um, it's been amazing. And any books that were particularly impactful for you? You said you were reading through a few as you were trying to navigate this. Yes. So I would say Built to Sell was incredible. Uh, so Built to Sell is about a busy, successful entrepreneur who he wants to sell his business. And this book isn't about selling, but making your business more scalable. So in that book, they talked about creating a system and hiring the right people so you can have a good day-to-day -day life. So that 
helped. That was a light switch. And then um, rocket fuel was really Mm. cool for me because it helped me break down my business. So like now I look at level best in three different tiers. And so like when I'm hiring, I'm like, okay, like where do I need to fill different uh, buckets with outsourcing? I think those are the two that are top of mind for me. Very cool. Very cool. So what, what else like do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you like six plus years ago when you were getting, getting ready to launch this? Mm-hmm. Your mental health is very important. Um, and burnout is real. I did not prioritize myself and my mental health like probably for the first five years. I think the past two, I've been more intentional, Um, but we need brain space. Like we need real downtime to unplug. I work with a lot of advisors. You know, we're all, our our phones are always on, our emails are on our phone. Like we need time to shut down. And if you don't, it will take over your, your body, your physical health. And that has happened to me where like my, the stress was so unbearable that my body was telling me, Hey, you need a break. And I think that it can happen to anyone, no matter age, it's important to prioritize your mental health because like, if you're not there, like your business will not be able to be as successful. And you want to put your best foot forward. I realized this when I took some time off um, and my client, I came back, my client's like, you just seem so different. Like you're just like your persona, like your energy. And that's when I was like, you have not been hiding it, you know? Yeah. And so it, it was a, a big eye opener for me. So I'm slowing down a little bit and taking care of myself because that's how we, that's when we get the best results. So. So tell me a little more, just like, what did you do? Like, what did you do and change? As you said, two years ago, like, I gotta, I gotta start doing this differently to get a, get to a better, better place with my mental health and sanity. Yeah. So I hired two people, (laughs) a business coach and a therapist, and I was able to focus on myself personally with the therapist and then focus on what I want in the business with the the business coach. Like when someone asks you, hey, where do you want this to go? So let's figure out how to get there. And what are you doing that you're, you don't enjoy anymore? What are solutions? Do you want to drop this offering or should we hire someone for that? So having those accountability partners to put myself first were really uh, key for me. And, and can I ask, like, who did you work with for a business coach? Yes. So uh, his name is George Fernandez. He's actually in the industry and um, he was a COO, I believe, at a large RIA. And he he reached out to me years ago because he launched his business. And I was like, again, (laughs) that sounds amazing. Can we we work together? Can I be a client? But I'll refer clients to you. And so that's how that happened. And I've been working with him for, I think, a year and a half now. All right. Very cool. Very cool. So so what advice would you give newer advisors coming into the industry today and and trying to figure out this uh, like this path of how I get going with my business if I if I want to be a little a little more mindful about mm-hmm. what I'm creating from an operations perspective? 
That's a good question. Um, I Before deciding if you want to launch your business, definitely know all your options. Um, I talk to a lot of people who are just starting out that don't enjoy owning their business, but you know they may be a good partner at a firm. I think weighing out all of your options is important. But if you do decide to start your business, I think you should start with the resources that you have. Um, don't, you know, stress yourself out with financials if you don't have it. There's a lot of free resources, like I mentioned here on the podcast today, um, and make a budget. And then from there, find the best route for you. So if you're a DIY, find the courses, um, leverage platforms like you know, XYPN uh, to get started, um, leverage mastermind groups, start with the, the low cost options. And then from there, if you're not getting enough support, then look into hiring a coach or a consultant and making sure you have, you understand how long it's going to take to really get your business off the ground. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast around success and and just one of the themes that comes up is the the word success means means different things to different people and so you're on this wonderfully successful path for building up and scaling the the consulting business and hiring team and building courses and all the things that we get to do to to scale and grow from a business perspective but how do you define success for yourself at this point yeah um, success for me is impacting this industry um, more beyond myself and my team. And then also just being fulfilled personally while uh, pursuing that journey. Very cool. I, li- I like the balance of I- industry impact and keeping a, a, a just a personal fulfillment or a personal balance you know, piece to it. As, as you said, otherwise, like it's pretty easy to get so in your business, you lean into it so hard, you you start burning yourself out. Yes. We all have people who love us outside of the industry and they need our attention just as much as our clients do and our team does. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Therese, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.